0: Welcome to the Stripped Money Podcast with Lungyele. Thank you for giving us your ears as we break down money to its bare bones, letting you know how your money can work for you.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Stripped Money Conversations. And today we talk about how best to leave your legacy. If you listen to the very first episode of this podcast where my henchard and I were discussing our goals for the year, ensuring that we leave a good legacy for our little guy was top of the list. But yeah, I hate talking about wills and trusts. I'm part of the group of people who really cannot deal with mortality. But this is a conversation that must be had because we have heard so many stories of wealthy people dying without a will, like Michael Jackson, Chadwick Boseman recently, and we hear about all the drama that follows. But this is not just relevant to wealthy individuals. We all know a friend of a friend where someone passed on and a whole lot of drama ensued. So how do you ensure that if anything happens to you, your loved ones are taken care of and hopefully conflict-free? Joining me today is Zola Kosi, an admitted attorney, notary, and fiduciary specialist. Zola has for the last 11 years been working in private practice and in corporates, advising individuals on various aspects of structuring their affairs, and I think that she's the best person to help us navigate this world and help strip it down for us. Hello Zola, how are you? I'm doing well myself. I'm great, thank you. So this world that you're involved in, so complicated. But before we get into that, um, yeah. can you let us know a little bit about yourself and your journey? Uh, okay, so I'm
0: Zola. Um, I'm a lawyer by trade. So I started off sort of doing BA and then I did LLB. And one of the topics, or one of the um, courses that I really enjoyed was succession during that mm-hmm. period. Um, and during my articles, I didn't actually do succession. And eventually, when I finished my articles, I actually wanted to go into the field, and I joined a private bank in a small little niche group. And what they did is that they did uh, trusts, offshore yeah. and onshore trusts. I was sort of thrown into a totally different world. Um, didn't even know sort of offshore trusts existed. And sort of from there, sort of my career has sort of evolved. And I've then gone from banking into private practice, back into banking and have done estates and trusts and fiduciary in general. So the area has sort of grown, and I think even more so recently, um, as people become more and more aware of sort of leaving a legacy Mm. and ensuring they want to sort of tie up the loose ends. They don't want to leave individuals um, sort of in a mess, for lack of a better term.
1: So you are a fiduciary specialist. Let's get into that, because already that term is frightening me. What does it mean?
0: Yeah, oh, it sounds kind of fancy, but it's it's actually quite simple. So when we talk about fiduciary and fiduciary responsibility, sort of in the field, we talk about someone who actually takes care of the affairs of another. So okay. ultimately, it's someone who is placed in a position of trust. And if you think of the fiduciary field in general, when we talk about an executor, someone who would wind up your estate, that's someone who's placed in the position of trust, um, because they are clearly they provided with um, the responsibility to wind up your estate. Similarly, where you have a trust, where you have a trustee, that individual is also placed in a position of trust. Um, so that's sort of the fancy term that we use to make ourselves sound special. Um, but sort of narrowing it down and stripping it down, it's
1: it's actually placing us in a position of trust. What we okay, do what we do. that simplifies it for me and makes it makes this conversation. Um, warm up a little bit better for me. Zola, <laughs> um, so like it is said that 80% of people in South Africa die without a will. Um, what is a will? Let's just start there.
0: So a will is a, a document that you actually set out what your wishes are. I say that it's one of the most important documents that you will sign. Um, and people always say, well, I don't have anything. What do I need this document for? Mm. This document contains so much um, I say that place your burial rights there because if there's any dispute in relation to your burial rights that's where people will look. Um, it sets out who if you've got minor children who the guardian of those minor children will be when their natural parents are no longer around. It sets out exactly how your estate will devolve. Whom do you want to leave your assets to? And even if you say I don't have much like think of your bank account. So even if there's 100 rand sitting in your bank account. That 100 rand needs to go to someone, and mm-hmm. if you don't determine who it goes to, the state will. Um, so um, yeah, that's exactly what you, the document is there for.
1: Okay, so at what age can you get a will? You talked about you don't have to have much to to have one, but at what age can you can you start drawing up one? So at the age of 16, um, you then have capacity
0: in which you can execute this document ultimately.
1: Okay, you talk about a document. So if somebody writes down all of their wishes on a notepad and hides it under their bed and somebody finds it post later, is that um, a legally binding document? Will that stand? So they, uh, the wills Act actually sets out what creates what creates a valid
0: will. Mm. And in order for the will to be valid, it must be signed by you as the individual that has has um, created it yeah. So you don't or we used to require that you pin it by your own hand but clearly that's no longer the case somebody types it for you or you type it for yourself um, but you need to sign it and you need to sign it in the presence of two competent witnesses okay and when we talk about a competent witness we talk about someone who has capacity and they are over the age of 14 and they are not nominated as an heir as a guardian, as a trustee, or as an executor in your will, or the spouses of any of those aforementioned persons. Oh, wow. Um, yes, so, and what, that's where people so the reason why you have two individuals in the same room as you when you sign it is that if there's any dispute, those individuals can actually provide testimony to the fact that you were the one that signed that document. The will also needs to be signed on each and every page. Yeah. But if you were to do that and it was sort of underneath your bed and it seemed like it was your last, your last wishes and it had been dated, is that if you went to court, a court might find, find it to be so. Um, but once again, I mean, that's an entire process and you don't yeah. spend that
1: kind of money, yeah. Okay, um, so you talk about it must be signed on every page, it must have two um, co-signatories, what are the other things that might make your will not to be enforced?
0: Um, so, first of all, the document must be dated because we want to know that it's, it's, it is, it is the last, it's the, your last wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, it must also be identified that you are the author thereof, so it must have your name on it yeah. and preferably your, your ID. But uh, there are various things. So, for instance, if you write in your will that you'll only leave your estate to your son if he doesn't marry Zola, <laughs> will not enforce that because it's it's it seemed to be contrary to to public policy you okay. can't sort of be brave in that if it was found that you didn't have capacity so think of the grandmother who doesn't have um who's got dementia who doesn't have any sort of legal capacity or someone who a doctor or a psychiatrist or or any other medical professional has has actually deemed not to have um, capacity in which to contract um, that document that's been signed by them at that date wouldn't, wouldn't be valid. Or where there's been undue influence, um, you know, where, where somebody is demented and you have a Malume who comes along and says to Coco, please sign here, please sign yeah. here. You know, it's, it's quite clear in that instance that she might not necessarily have have executed that document.
1: Cool. So you work with wills and all of that on a day-to-day basis, and we've heard horror stories of celebrities passing on without a will and the drama that follows. Have you heard any real-life stories where things could have turned out differently if somebody had a will or had done it correctly that you can share with us?
0: Oh, so many. So Mm. so many. Um, But I always think that, I say that the, the law determines who your heirs are. Mm. And sometimes who the Lord determines who your heirs are isn't necessarily who you deem to be your heirs. So I the two things always come to mind for me. I say is that if you're cohabitating with a life partner, mm. I mean, there's, there's, there's a court case currently, but if previously if you were cohabitating with a life partner and the property is yours that you've been living in and you've been living there for the last six months, let's say, And your intention is that you might have wanted to leave that property to the life partner. But now something happens to you and your parents sort of are the ones that inherit. You might be placing that individual in a very awkward position. Because even if the intention wasn't to leave the property to them, but just to give them the right to reside in that property for a period of a year until they're able to sort of collect themselves, grieve appropriately, and be able to move on or think of an instance if you are married or, and you are looking after a parent Yeah. and you don't write in your will that you want your parents to inherit, is that your spouse, if you don't have children, will inherit everything or your spouse and your children will to the exclusion of your parent and you've been looking after your parents. So this is not taking into account your pension fund that will look for your dependents, but this is just in relation to the assets that you have. And that might not be your intention. Or you might be looking after a sibling um, or this, you might be putting a sibling through university and your intention was to see them through. Mm. Uh, so, and that's why I say that everybody's family structure is so different and your and, and you know, the consequences are so different. And that's why everyone's family structure and everyone's will is so unique to them.
1: It really is. Mm. So why do you find that a lot of people die without wills? I mean, especially those with, with the means to, to draw up one.
0: I think there's a lot of um, misinformation and I'd, or rather there's not enough information that gets filtered through to individuals mm. in relation to what this document is and what, you, what goes in there. I mean, even as something as simple as once you become a parent and recording who your guardians will be, you know, it's a, one of the first things you should actually do. Yeah. Um, that's the first thing. And I think secondly, there's fear. People don't want to deal with their mortality. Yeah, it's I'm one of me. those people. <laughs> <laughs> but my challenge is always, if you're able to take out a life insurance policy, mm. or if you're able to take out a funeral policy, then surely the subsequent document should be your will. Um, because we can put money together to bury you. But if we don't know how you want to be buried or who your assets must devolve on, I mean, that kind of uncertainty in a time of grief has got the worst kind of consequences um, in that it breaks relationships, you know, going forward. Mm. How often should somebody update their will? As and when the consequences of your life change. So it could be you could change your will twice a year. You could change your will. I always say think of a birth of a child, the death of any of your heirs, or the death of anyone who's close to you, um, your relationship with your nominated guardians might change, Mm. your children will grow. So when your children are two, the individual who you nominate as their guardian might change when your children are 14. You might be involved in a car accident and one of your children could um, have special needs thereafter. You know, and they might need way more help, and they might—you might want to leave more to them. You could have a child who's on drugs, <laughs> you know, that you don't want to leave the the amount directly to them, and you'd rather leave it into a trust for them to mm. be administered managed on their behalf. So there, there are many, many different different reasons. I mean, my husband and I—I I always say on our anniversary, I whip it out. Seems very morbid. And that's so romantic. They, <laughs> romantic I'm like here we go are oh, we still on point and then he, sort of gives me that he rolls his eyes but then I know for my peace of mind it's a day yeah. that I remember It's and it's for me it's important mm. um and as much as we're going to celebrate our anniversary for me that's sort of the document that shows that we love each other as well mm. um how, more than someone else might, might and yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so <laughs> what so when I was looking up drawing up a world obviously I, I drew up one, when I got married, because that felt like the the right thing to do to say, OK, cool. This is how if anything happens, this is how um, I'd like everything to roll out. And then obviously updating it when I had my baby. But when you're doing all your research, you find obviously I look for the worst case scenario or the horror stories first. And I've seen um, that if you don't have a will, it means that your estate is left interstate. What does that mm-hmm. mean?
0: So it means that there's legislation called the Interstate Succession Act,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: sets out whom your heirs are and how they determine that is firstly by bloodline, which we call consanguinity, and how close you related to someone. So we say that your your parents are closest to you or your children are closest to you, uh, failing your children, your parents, and then from your parents, clearly your siblings will then then flow there from um, Also, is that your spouse is also closest to you. And that's what we call by affinity. So that's why I said that you might have unintended consequences. So going back to the individual who is cohabitating.
1: Yeah. um,
0: That the intention might be that, yes, I've purchased this property and we've been living in it. But I actually want to leave it to you. You know, or I want it to pass to my parents. But I want you to have the right to live here. That interstate succession act isn't necessarily going to take this individual into account, um, and I and going once again, I said there's a court case that's currently mm. um, up the constitutional court for for confirmation in relation to sort of individuals that are cohabitating, but it's that uncertainty in that moment, um, and I always say, what does it do to family relationships or to any relationships? when you are taking each other to court to confirm something yeah. Yeah, in the in that moment especially you know? yeah, after somebody's death it, mm. yes so it makes you sound like you are greedy <laughs> yeah that's sort of thing that comes about and it might not be greed it might be necessity in that moment so it, it's just it's to remove that uncertainty because as much as the law sets out who your heirs are you know our circumstances are not the same
1: Exactly. So, so we've talked about getting a will and all of that. Where does somebody, I mean, where do you go if somebody's like, "Okay, cool, Zola has scared me enough today. I need to get myself a will." Where, where do I go?
0: Oh, so many places. So your bank, um, the banks usually have um, an individual that's able to guide you through those processes, and um, the attorneys' firms. Um, that are, are well-equipped to do so as well. Um, and some of your investment houses have somebody in-house uh, that's able to do so. They're, uh, so they are various, various spots and even online. Um, but I always say that I would strongly recommend, if you are able to, mm-hmm. is to have a chat to someone just to sort of chat through your circumstances. Because as much yeah. as you can go online and you complete the form, is that there might just be that nuance that might change something for you. So it's quite nice to be able to have that consult if 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 it's available to you.
1: I actually wanted to ask you that because there's a lot of easy, okay, I'm not gonna say the name, but a lot of um places online that say they can make your will, um, you can drop your will very quickly within 15 minutes online. But then how do we how do you then verify? Obviously, you talked about the two co-signatories and all of that stuff. So I'm not sure then of the valid. Ditty of a world that you draw up online do you have an opinion on that at all
0: so i mean the individuals i think online what they would do is that um, based on the information that you provide uh, their various questions they would ask and they would draft the world and they would send the world to you so our our entire administration process in relation to what is very archaic it's mm. very, paper-based, very paper-based system still um and in that instance, they would send it to you. You would print it out. You would then find two independent witnesses or you would go into an office that they probably have, which was a satellite office or, or they might have a head office. You would go in there and they would have two individuals that would sit with you and you would sign the will and those two individuals would then, would then um, witness the will and to ensure that it's valid. And they would then retain that original and probably keep it in safekeeping for you. Okay.
1: Okay. Talking about safekeeping, when you are drawing up a will, there is a charge for safekeeping, I think. And um, if you don't take up that opportunity, maybe let's just discuss what is safekeeping a will of a will.
0: Safekeeping a will is that many institutions have got a safe and it's fireproof and they would store your will. And when that death notice comes up, In the paper, yes, there are people that draw the papers and look for death notices. When that death notice comes up in the paper or when someone in your family comes and says to the bank or to an attorney's firm and says that this individual has passed away, they would clearly look at the index and they would go out and they would draw the original will and they then have a responsibility to file that will with the master's office. Mm -hmm. Um, in in the jurisdiction of the master's office that you've been residing for the last 12 months prior to your death. Um, And they would then file it there and anyone else that holds an original. So for instance, someone might have an original with me, with the institution that I work for, and they might have an original with another institution and both institutions would then file those originals and they would look at which is the one that was the latest one. okay yes um you can keep your own will there's no reason for you to leave it at an institution i think it's advisable to do so um because you might die simultaneously with all your family members and no one knows the password to your yes it happens (laughs) and it's and it sounds terrible especially during Mm. this time of families have been wiped out people get onto airplanes and the airplane goes down or you are on in a car and everybody gets wiped out. So my son might not have the passcode or they might not be able to find this document. Um, so it is advisable to keep it with an institution.
1: So if, then are you yeah. supposed to tell people around you that, okay, cool, I've got my will with X, so call Zola and here's her number if you need to, if anything ever happens to me, because how else would they know you've got one?
0: Yeah, so I say to say to your guardian. So think of the individuals that you nominate as your minors' guardians. Mm. Um, say to them, I have a will, and the will is with X institution. If something happens to me, then it's with it. clearly your partner would know, yeah. or anyone that's nominated as an heir, just to let somebody know where it is. You don't have to let them know exactly what's in the document. Mm. Um, you don't wish to share those details, but just let them know where it is, so so that they're able to to access it because that's, 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 that's quite a big thing. Um, just sort of going back, another thing is sort of your, if you think about your digital assets, people don't think about those. You've got Facebook. Social media. Social media. What happens to you after that? All of those passwords. So you want someone to be able to go in there and shut those down. And that's one of the things that people are dealing with in their wills these days. And just to show you how sort of the industry is also evolving in,
1: in relation to that. I never thought about that i thought about my banking and everything else, but I never thought actually what I want to happen with my social media. Do I want it to live on? And my children maybe one day see how mom was, or do I want somebody to shut those down? That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Earlier on, you spoke about in case you've got a a child who's on drugs, you might want to administer their, um, I don't know, They you're have to be in the trust, yes. Yes. So maybe let's get into the world of trusts. What is a trust so that we understand? So uh, sort of historically trusts come from
0: very much an English law concept when people used to go off to war and they would say to their neighbor, you know, here is my property. Can you please look after it for my children in case I don't come back? And it's exactly sort of the same concept that has sort of evolved And it's you taking assets, placing them into a trust, which is a structure, um, and handing them over to a trustee who then administers those assets for the benefit of a third party. And that third party would be the beneficiaries that you mentioned in the
1: trust. So then what is the difference between a will and a trust? So so your will sets out what happens to your assets at death.
0: A trust is a structure that you set up either during your lifetime, or you can set one up in your will. If you've set up a structure, a trust during your lifetime, and you've put assets in there, let's say the assets have been donated, uh, those assets no longer form part of your estate. So there's a separation between your estate, which is what your will would govern, mm-hmm. and the trust, which is what the trust deed, which is the contract that the, the, the trust is set up would govern.
1: Okay. Are there different types of trusts? You mentioned living and once you've passed on, so are there differences? Yes. So there are two types, there differences in that there are two types of trusts. There's
0: one that you set up during your lifetime, which we mm-hmm. call an interview trust. And then you can, that trust is then funded during your lifetime, either via donation or via loans. And they clearly have different tax consequences. And then there's a trust that is set up um, in your will. And you would say that, For instance, I leave my estate to Lungile subject to it being administered on her behalf and placed in trust. And that trust is called what we call a mortis causa trust. It comes into, or a testamentary trust, and it comes into effect at the date of your death and is only funded at the date of your death. But the sort of concept of both or the the underlying concept of both is exactly the same. It's the idea that it's taken care of by one person in behalf of.
1: Oh, and then in your trust, is this a document where you say, okay, cool. If I've got a million rand one day, I can say mm-hmm. my child will not have access to that money up until he's 23. And I believe that he's responsible enough to do so. Is, is that Do you put that in a trust or will or it the same?
0: So what you would do with minors is that a minor cannot receive an inheritance in their personal capacity in South Africa. So that's anyone under the age of 18. Okay. And if- what happens in that instance is that you either set up a trust in the will and you, and you say exactly what you've said is that, that those assets will go into trust until they attain a certain age. So you could say until they reach 18 or until they reach the age of 25, at which date the capital can then be passed down to them. But during that period, your trustee would administer the trust for them and would be able to provide them with the income, or if the income isn't sufficient, would be able to provide them with capital okay so or you me, could say yeah oh sorry you could say that um i can see that this child they are 22 but they are into drugs and there is no way that i can give them money and mm-hmm. as a result i would then rather place their assets in trust and they'll be administered on their behalf and the trustees can then can then decide okay cool
1: i've heard of a really cool story so well, it's sad for the woman but Um, her parents left her money in a trust and they said she could only get it when she's 40. So here she is at 30 and she's going through the most financially. She's like, (laughs) she's not even making ends meet. And she went to court and tried to fight the trust and say, guys, but look at me, I don't have any money. But my parents left me quite a large sum of money. And they, she, she lost. So she had to wait, literally wait until she was forty to get access to that money. Is it really that watertight that whatever my wish is doesn't it doesn't um, your personal circumstances um, before that age won't make a difference?
0: It depends on the wording of the trust. Mm. Um, so the wording of I mean I don't have sight of the of the case of so the wording of the trust, but if yeah. for instance there was somebody else that has got access to that fund so maybe there's somebody else right now that has entitlement to the income and she's only entitled to the capital when she gets to 40. That might be the story Um, but if the trust has been left for your child's benefit I mean mean, from the wording perspective it would be best to structure it as flexibly as possible you know you, you want your child to be able to 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 live and enjoy their lives, um, Mm. clearly within limitations. So in that instance, you want them for that trust to be able to provide for education. You want to be able to provide for maintenance. But within them, you will find that as generations go on, clearly people carve their own sort of lifestyles and um, one family group might need more money than another. So the circumstances change. So in some instances, those trusts do terminate at some point. It might be years down the line, which seems into perpetuity for us, um, but it it, it isn't necessarily so. Um, Or it might be a hundred years down the line, Um, but they they can continue. As long as there's a rationale, they can continue for a long time.
1: Okay, cool. And um, some of the benefits... Of setting up a trust when you're alive so I asked some of my listeners if they had any questions for this particular episode and everybody was more was very interested in understanding how you can put your current property that you're living in or your investment properties in a trust and what are the benefits of doing that from a tax perspective
0: oh so it's very much dependent on what sort of your structure is so there are two methods in which trust can be funded the one is via donation mm-hmm. and you say let's say you've got an investment property and the investment property is two million rand is that if you donate it to the trust is that you would pay donations tax in a year of assessment with anything above a hundred thousand rand at 20 percent Okay. So above and uh, below thirty million Rand would be taxed at twenty percent, above thirty million Rand would be taxed at twenty-five percent. And then you would have to pay transfer duty to get that property into the trust. And then you would because it's it's like a sale. Remember, yeah. you you sell it to a third party once again, and then you would have so there would be conveyance, you'd have to pay transfer duty, then you'd have to pay the conveyancer to transfer to transfer it in there. Then um, the question of the maintenance, how is this trust going to be maintained? How is this property going to be maintained? Mm. Um, is it going to be let, uh, for instance? Um, I mean, the rental income would go in there. I mean, they're clearly beneficiaries that are entitled to the rental income. Yeah. So the trustee would then decide that, depending on whether the trust is discretionary or non-discretionary, and usually where it's discretionary, the trustees can decide where the income goes. And in one year, they might say, actually, this year, everything goes towards maintenance and there's no money. Whereas the following year, they might say to the beneficiaries, oh, lungile, we are giving you the income for the year, uh, less expenses. And the year that they provide you with the income, the income will be taxed in your hands. The year that the income is retained in the trust, the income is taxed at the trust's hands. So it's not as simple as to say that, if it's in the trust, it's taxed less or it's taxed yeah. more. Or, um, it's, very, it's very nuanced in relation to what what the circumstances are, are at the time.
1: So then I, I, I would think that if I want to put a property in a trust, then I must do it from the moment I purchase it so that it's um, set up or bought into the trust rather than moving it from my personal capacity and moving it into a trust. Yes, but also the trust doesn't have any money. So once again, we go back to that Are you
0: donating how is the trust? How is it going to get in
1: there?
0: Uh, Or is it via a loan? And where it's via a loan, the loan needs to be at an arm's length interest rate, which means that it's no different to if the bank had loaned the trust to the money. And since you, the individual that's loaning it, is that the interest every year is considered to be income in your hands and you need to add it to your income tax. So there's and that's why I'm saying is that it needs to the trust needs to make sense in relation to your entire structure mm. and people might think don't have a structure. And I say, of course, you've got a structure. You've got a family structure. Who's part of your family structure? You know, is it just, are you, are you single? Are you a single parent? Um, do you have a partner? What, what is sort of the, if, if you have a life partner, are you married? If you married, are you married in community property? Are you married out of community property? Cause all of those things have consequences. Are you a shareholder in a business? You know, what happens to that shareholding if you die? Um, If there's a trust, is there a loan made to you by the trust? Um, You know, do you have an RA? Do you have a pension fund? How does that form part of the rest of your scheme? Do you have properties that you own with other third parties? Because you might have property with a friend uh, when you guys were starting out. You know, what happens to that shareholding? Do you have a property that you've purchased with a parent? um are you helping a parent out are you helping out a sibling so all of those things form part of your greater estate plan and that trust is merely one aspect of your estate plan and actually needs to form part of the pieces of the puzzle it mm. needs to mix it mm-hmm. so going to um and a, if you think of a picture think of it as what your intentions are are the picture outside the, the puzzle if you purchase the puzzle and the pieces inside need to match the ones outside. And if they don't, then you
1: need to make the match. And that's exactly what, what, what we do for lack of a better term. Okay. This feels like if I want anything, I just need to talk to another human because it can get complicated <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> um, another question that we got from a listener is what is better leaving your assets, including life cover in a will or in a trust, but I think you've answered it previously, but maybe let's just give it a, its own answer.
0: Yeah. And once again, I say that it's dependent on your circumstances. So yeah. if you've got a minor child, then the trust might be it's the perfect vehicle at the time. If you've got a child who's 25, who's responsible, um, or you've got a child who's 25 and you would actually rather leave it in the trust for them, even though they're responsible because you think that they're involved in business and you don't want sort of those assets to be mixed up with their personal assets. And if something happens to their business, you want to ensure that they'll still be okay. The trust structure might still be sort of been, been an option. Mm. Um, you might have a child with special needs and the trust structure is the best option. Or you might just have a 19 year old and you just want a vanilla structure where you just leave everything to the 19 year old because that's the way you want it. So it's very much dependent on where you are in your life at the time. And so you need to keep reviewing, reviewing your, your structure as a whole.
1: Cool. I don't know how you chose this career, girl, because <laughs> it is so complicated <laughs> and full of jargon. Um, <laughs> I know we ask each one of my guests to strip down one money term so that our listeners can easily understand it. And is there something relating to the topics that we spoke about today that is often confused um, or not un- understood by a lot of people that you think you can simplify for us even further?
0: Yeah, I think a guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's maybe it's close to my heart, but I think that people need to think of whom they choose to be their guardians. You know? Think of someone who has the same outlook on life that you do, but also think of whether financially they'd be able to take care of your children once your money runs out. Mm. So it's um, because you assume that the money that you leave will be able to last your children during their lifetime, but it's very much dependent on what happens to you and at what stage in your life. Mm. So you need to ensure that that individual or those individuals also have a full understanding of the responsibility that they're taking on. So if you've got a friend or family or sister who's or brother who's got six children, adding your three might not exactly be the best option, even though they would love your children completely. Mm. Um, So for me, it's exactly that. It's, It's understanding exactly what the various people, whether it's a guardian, whether it's an executor, um, whether it's a trustee what they what role they will play um, and and picking people responsibly and not emotionally um, Good. yeah Good.
1: okay that's deep, and you've got me thinking <laughs> really hard now um, yeah, so that, that was supposed to be the last question for the show, but something just popped into my mind is. If you pick somebody to be um, a guardian for your child and when you pass on, they come back and say, I can't do it, what then happens? Yes, you might have spoken to them three, seven years ago and they agreed, but now they can't. So what uh, we
0: usually recommend is that you have a substitute. So you nominate them and you nominate a substitute. So that the substitute still kicks in. And where the substitute doesn't kick in, you hope that there's a family member that will raise their hand. Mm. And then you approach the master's office and you approach the court so that they can confirm that guardianship. And it's important to continue to have those conversations, not just the one off yeah. but as your kids grow and to keep reviewing those relationships. Um, not because you don't like the individual, but just because the circumstances have changed. Mm-hmm. And it also might be that... Uh, the individual that you've chosen might be grieving and might just not be coping with your death or might not be coping with the death of multiple people and is not in a position in which they're able to take care of your children. So it might not just be personal for them, but it might not be possible. Mm. Um, so yeah, so to keep having those conversations, uh, sounds morbid, but but definitely important conversations to have.
1: Yeah cool thank you so much for your time today it has been really insightful i i hated preparing for this because like i said i can't deal with thinking Ah. about these things but i think you've just shed so much light and um you're making me think about quite a lot of things and i hope that my listeners are are taking the same um feel the same that you actually have to take this so seriously not to say that i was playing before but (laughs) you've made me think even harder so thank you so much for your time.
0: Yes, thank you for having me, Lumina. I really enjoyed it. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving us your ears. Catch us on the social media streets. On Facebook, it's Stripped the Podcast. On Instagram, at Stripped underscore the Podcast. And on the Twitter streets, Stripped underscore Podcast.